After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Ramdas here and now, another podcast edition, and I'm Raghu Marcus. Let's see, today I went into the archives and I've come up with something one would say a rare because actually we just, somebody, what happens sometimes is people write and say, you know what, I taped this Ramdas talk from 1970 or whatever. In this case, it's 1969-70. I'm not exactly sure of the date, but it's only a year and a half, I think, after he first came back from India, when he first went to India. So it, it is really rare. So they, they send these things to us, and we check, and, and boy, we didn't have a number of these talks. And in this particular case, because it's right after Ramdas came back from India, it has a certain, uh, I don't know what the right word is, a certain purity of, you know, how someone who, they've just discovered something that they, that is like a precious jewel, and they want to share it, and at the same time, be very, uh, as Ramdas is very honest about what he's found. Th- I'm, I'm thinking that this talk can be titled "Geography of the Journey," which he mentions at the very beginning and says, "This is, this is my geography of the of the journey." He's he's mapping it out, which is also weird because we just uh, on ramdas.org we're have we're going to have a new page that is going to have a bunch of different topics that people can go into and choose from, you know, learning about compassion or dealing with uh, grief, death and dying or uh, how to deal with difficult emotions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and uh and we're calling it Atlas of Wisdom. So it's like he came up with this geography of the journey that's evolved to Atlas of, of Wisdom on the net 50 years later, some crazy thing. It's all amazing, ain't it? Um, yes, yeah, so so this is about mapping, um, some of the mapping that he's done, of the, uh, that he did at that moment about the journey. Uh, and there's a lot in here also about the whole idea of... Uh, being in retreat, when to be in retreat, when you're not in retreat, and how to to go th- that we naturally go through different stages and so on. And he he talks about how 
some uh, you know that he get, tells a story of a monk who came from the cave and he's suddenly in the city and of course everything is completely uh triggering him so that he becomes angry and of course this is a difficult situation that we all find ourselves in especially after we've done something even just a vacation you come back in and you're just reactive wow I have a, a, and I met this incredible Rinpoche, I told it in a long time ago podcast on mind rolling, and uh, he, I, I said, you know, it's really difficult, I just came from the mountains and I was, I've been meditating, been, you know, in, in the presence of this incredible being, and now I'm in the city and, you know, it's very difficult, what it, do you have to be up in the mountains and in a retreat kind of thing to to be able to to live in the world without being uh, completely taken down by it, so to speak? And he said, "No, absolutely. That the way is." And he uh, he gave an example uh, about how it was that people could find the kind of complete inner tranquility and equanimity to be able to handle day-to-day life in a way that's not, there's no stress to put it into a modern now uh, vernacular. But he said, he gave me the example of the seven siddhas of India, each of one who became enlightened by virtue of work that they did. One was uh, one made clay pots, one uh, spun cotton, um, and so on. Uh, and they all had a different uh, task that they did. It could it, The most simplistic of things that they became completely one with. S- of course, that was uh, some thousands of years ago. It might be a little more difficult today. Uh, but I- in essence, if you really think about it, whatever it is that we are doing in any one moment, it's, uh, that's what mindfulness is about. And just becoming one with that with which we are engaging. So... So this, so that's very much part of what uh, this talk is about, and uh, as I, he also talks about a lot about mantra. If you want to know about mantra, and and he even brings in um, uh, mandala, where visualizations which bring you to one point as well. So the stuff around mantra is really uh, pretty great, and um, and he talks about. Uh, consecrate. I love this part. Consecrating life's ac- actions, so that uh, you're really investing spirit in everything that you engage with. That's uh, that's a tall order as well, but something for us to certainly ch- um, uh, aspire to. Um, and he the the um, the way in which he describes that particular consecration is through the prayer for food, and he tells a great story. You know, Brahma Pranam, we played it before, just a few episodes ago, by the way, is that great um, uh, podcast with Ramdas, Jack Cornfield, and Joseph Goldstein from the uh, Naropa sessions all around the sacredness of food and the consecration of it and what all that means. So he brings in this whole story around his father, which is funny, and I won't tell you because he tells it better. And then um, the... Uh, The kicker of this talk is, because right at the end of, of at least the file that I have, 
he says, all right, well, we'll take questions, and, you know, and uh, somebody asks a long-winded question. It's kind of interesting how he responds. He's very um, firm, shall we say, with this person who was just going on and wanted to tell his life story kind of a deal. Uh, and then he ended up with a question It was around acid and, and uh, what he had heard that Ramdas had said, God came to the U.S., in the form of LSD, which wasn't quite what what was the quote then. The quote was, and that's why this talk is is a rarity. The quote is from Hari Das Baba. He refer, he does not mention the name in in the in the talk because he wasn't mentioning any names. N- n- certainly not Neem Karoli Baba, his guru, and uh, and certainly not his teacher, who was uh, Hari Das Baba. And it was Haridas Baba who gave the that really singular quote about acid and what it meant and how it came uh, to this country uh, in 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 the form that it did and what it did it did to all of us uh, back then and and had such a great influence and continues to do so although Ramdas has a whole other take on it so yeah this is juicy stuff. Uh, um, oh, I want to say one thing, though. I forgot to say this at the beginning. Uh, you know, the uh, retreats we have in uh, in Maui, well, the December one's called Open Your Heart in Paradise, and this last one, which is a few months ago, uh, the title was Finding the Beloved, Touching the Compassionate Heart with Ramdas Krishnadas. Jack Cornfield, his partner Trudy Goodman, Mirabai Bush, Sharon Salzberg, uh, Ramesh Wardas, Ramdas's co-author, is in there. I'm there, and with uh, doing stuff with Duncan and Ramdas, kind of really fun stuff. Uh, that's all available. We did this thing uh, with uh, a little partnership with Yoga International uh, because we just can't handle doing all these things ourselves. So they're actually releasing it, and. Uh, so, yeah, it's a nice way to support what we're doing. Just go to uh, ramdas.org, and there'll be a banner up at the top that'll take you as a link to where you can uh, you can buy the downloads. So there you go. Here it is. This is, I, I, I want to call it this. I think it's a fantastic title. Geography of the Journey. Ramdas. Here and now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Stop for a moment and think about something that you really need to get off your chest. It could be frustration with your job or a coworker. It could be fear or uncertainty about the future. It could be a secret that you've been hiding for years. We all carry around different stressors, both big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Speaking with a therapist on a regular basis is also a great way to improve your communication skills, learn to resolve conflict, increase your self-awareness and self-esteem, develop positive coping strategies, build stronger relationships, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, plus switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com. 
BetterHelp.com slash Ramdas today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Ramdas. I would um, begin this evening with a uh, brief statement of the subject matter. And I thought that rather than my saying it, I would say it through a few other eyes. First, we'll start with Dante in Divine Comedy. I have been in that heaven the most illumined by light from him, and seen things which to utter he who returns hath neither skill nor knowledge. For as it nears the object of its yearning, our intellect is overwhelmed so deeply it can never retrace the path that it follows. But whatsoever of the holy kingdom was in the power of memory to treasure will be my theme until the song is ended. Walt Whitman. Swiftly arose and spread around me the place, the peace and joy and knowledge that passes all the art and argument of the earth. And I know that the hand of God is the elder hand of my own. And I know that the spirit of God is the eldest brother of my own and that all the men ever born are also my brothers and the women my sisters and lovers and that a kelson of creation is love. Robert Browning Truth lies within ourselves it takes no rise from outward things, whate'er you may believe. There is an inmost center in us all where truth abides in fullness. And to know rather consists in opening out a way whence the imprisoned splendor may escape than in effecting entry for a light supposed to be without. Finally, Ralph Waldo Emerson. A man is the facade of a temple wherein all wisdom and all good abide. What we commonly call man, the eating, drinking, counting, planting man, does not, as we know him, represent himself, but misrepresents himself. Last evening, here in Topeka, (coughs) 
as one of the journeyers on a path, a very, very old path, the path of consciousness, I, in a sense, met with the Explorers Club to tell about the geography I had been uh, mapping. Because the people who gather to hear somebody called Baba Ram Das, formerly Richard Alpert, have somewhere at some level in some remote corner some involvement in this journey. And all that I can see that we can do with one another is share notes of our explorations. And I can say, watch out, because around that bend, there's a, a, the road falls off sharply to the left. Stay far over on the right when you do that. The motivation for doing this is most interesting. It's only to work on myself. It's very easy to break attachments to worldly games when you're sitting in a cave in the Himalayas. It's quite a different take you do of sex, power, money, and fame and sensual gratification in the middle of New York City or in the United States with television and loving people around and great cooks and advertising and total support for all of the attachments. But there's the story of a monk who got very holy up in the mountain until he had some thousands of followers. And after many years, he went down into a city and he was in the town and somebody jostled him. And he turned around angrily. And that anger was a mark of how little work he had really done on himself. That for all the work he had done, he still hadn't cooked the seed of anger. He still got up tight when somebody pushed him around. So that what I see my own, what's called sadhana is, that is my work on my own consciousness, could also be called my spiritual journey, is very much uh, cyclic, cyclic. There are periods of going out and there are periods of turning back in. Periods of going out, periods of turning back in. Just as living here in the marketplace is forcing things into the forefront. So sitting in a room by myself for 30, 40 days in a mountain is forcing other things to be confronted. And each hides from the other. Each environment hides from the other sets of stimulus conditions. So I see that, uh, for example, in the commune we've been designing up in the mountains of New Mexico, where I ran an ashram for a while this winter, It's designed in, has four components to it. 
which are roughly related to the solstices, that for one period a person would be in the hermitage on the top of the hill where they would be going deep, diving deep within. They would be totally alone in solitude in a hermitage. Their food is left outside the door. And the one I ran this winter, uh, people would go in for up to 19 days. And the first time they went in, I let them take books and pictures and weaving and all of their things and their pet kind of cream cheese or whatever it was they needed. The second round, we changed the game a little and all they took in was their sleeping bag. And to walk into a room, close the door with your sleeping bag for the next 10 days. There's a fire and wood and food's left outside and there's a jug of water. There's no way you need to go. You're all protected, taken care of. No phones to answer, no mail. It's all taken care of for you. We're protecting you and giving you that chance to get free of all the stimuli that keep capturing your consciousness all the time. So you keep saying, if it weren't for, well, we're doing that. If it weren't for, we're creating that place. And a second part of the four-point cycle is that they, a person lives in the commune, an ashramite lives in the commune. That is, he takes care of the gardens, the babies, the goats, cooks the food, chops the wood, does karma yoga. But karma yoga among what's called satsang or sangha, that is the community of other beings who consciously know they are working on their own consciousness. In Buddhism, there is a traditional thing you do which is take the three refuges. It's, um, the chant is, uh, Buddham Saranam Gachami, Dharmam Saranam Gachami, Sangam Saranam Gachami, which means, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the fact that a being can become enlightened. That is, a being can get free of any particular state of consciousness, attachment to it. Second, the Dharma, I take refuge in the law, in the organization of the universe, the laws of the universe. You could also call it karma. And the third thing is, I take refuge in the Sangha, in the community of other people, of monks on the path, the way it's said. Community of other people that are seeking. So that when you define yourself as a, as a, seeker after sensual gratification, then you surround yourself with other people who are seekers after sensual gratification. When you define yourself as an intellect, you often surround yourselves with intellectuals. When you define yourself as a seeker after consciousness, you start to surround yourself with other seekers after consciousness. Because in that phase, being around such people really gives you a kind of environmental support It's like you take the matter of consecrating life actions, meaning what I mean by the word consecration is uh, bringing into consciousness it's the nature of the act in a cosmic plan. For example, when I bless food, now in the old days, there used to be people who'd say grace. Grace was the thing you waited for before you ate the turkey. You know, that Norman Rockwell characterizes the kid reaching, waiting while everybody's head's bowed. 
it's that time that let's say grace grace yeah. statement I say when I say grace is an old Sanskrit one that says Brahmarpanam Brahmahavir Brahmagni Brahmanahota Brahmaitan Gantabhyam Brahma Karma Samadina which means this offering of this thing, this little ritual I'm performing, this is part of all. Right? It's part of Brahma. It's part of that which is eternally all. He who's making the offering, meaning this, is part of it all. That which is being offered is part of it all. The hunger to which you are feeding, which you are feeding, the Agni, the fire which you are feeding, that's part of it all. Whoever you're offering it to is part of it all, too. He who realizes that all of it is interrelated, all of it is one, becomes one with it all. That's what that says. There's a very lovely short story by J.D. Salinger called Teddy, which uh, Teddy is a very, uh, like, he's like an old llama who's taken a reincarnation in a kind of a middle-class Western family by some quirk of cosmic design <laughs> and uh, he's about uh, uh, 10 years old and he's on a ship with his sister and his uh, mother and father and he's out on deck and he's meeting this this man has begun to see that this little boy isn't quite like a little boy and he says to him um, when did you first realize that you um, how it was and Teddy says well when I was six years old he said, I was in the kitchen, I was watching my little sister in her high chair drink milk. And he said, he said, I suddenly saw, he said, that it was sort of like God pouring God into God, if you know what I mean. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Well, that's exactly the same thing as that Sanskrit uh, mantra. You're pouring energy into energy for a matter of energy in honoring energy, you know. So big deal. So nothing's happened. Certainly knocks a hole in orality okay, to start to see the universe that way. Okay. What are we doing? Nothing. How could you ever do anything? <laughs> it's all here. <laughs> we all here? Sure. So learning how to consecrate and so on is it's helpful to have people around because when I consecrate the food now it's part of my karma to be visiting my father who is a 73-year-old, four-year-old Republican from Boston, a conservative man. And um, um, very successful man in the society. And when we sit down at the table, he starts to eat. And then he looks over and he sees that I'm doing this thing, which I do quietly. I'm not coming on about it. I'm just sort of sitting quietly, remembering that it's all absurd. And uh, he'll hold his spoon in midair, see, and he'll go, uh, he'll go, see, just that little, it's almost an involuntary thing that comes out every night, it's that, you know, like, okay, I'll wait for the kid, I mean, whatever, you know, it's his Meshuggah thing, it's all right, whatever it is. Now, that's not called satsang, or sangha, that is, that's not the community of monks on the path, see, and that, whether that 
helps me or not is a function of where I'm at, really. In other words, if I am into what I'm doing strongly enough, all that does is arouse a feeling of poignancy about our predicament. But it doesn't in any way deter from the amount of the, the, the living, vibrant quality I can invest in the thing I'm doing. Because you can say, Brahma Pana, I go to church now and then around the United States, and we read, we sing these hymns that are mind blowers. I mean, they are all hymns that get you high. They were written by people in ecstatic states, and you read them, you go out, and everybody's reading them like they're reading a shopping list. You know, it's like, because there's no spirit. The thing isn't invested in any way. And yet whoever wrote it invested it, and we say, well, they were naive, see. But what we mean is that we are turned off. Because when Christ says, look, I am making all things new, it's when you're really living here and now, every moment is all fresh. And that hymn is the first time you ever heard it, and you really go out on it. Otherwise, what'd you go to church for? The third part of the, ash, of the uh, ashram cycle is where uh, a member of the community goes into the city and pursues what Buddha calls right livelihood. That is, he raises the bread for the commune. Um, I once um, was um, with a group of ex-convicts who had started a commune up in the mountains outside of Los Angeles. They were... Uh, they would go out, about a hundred of them, and they would break into groups of eight and lie out in the woods with their heads touching and all take LSD. And um, with their wives and children. And they had quite a powerful community, and they were wondering what to do to broaden their... Because after a certain point of working inside, you begin to feel the pull of service. The, full, the pull of sharing or serving. It's like a karmic predicament you're in, that you can only collect so much before you've got to hand it over, spread it out, and then you can go back inside. And so they asked me what to do, and I said, why don't they open a shop in Laguna Beach? Which they did, which is now a fantastically successful shop where they make the crafts up in the hills and ship them in. And that whole process is one of building these different parts of ourselves, and people rotate through these various scenes. And the fourth component is um, visiting other kinds of ways of achieving consciousness, which may be like I've been working with the Benedictine monks at a monastery to start a workout exchange program, and with uh, uh, ashrams in India, and with um, growth centers, and so on, with the Hasids and with the Sufis. So what I'm saying is that this evening is part of my work on myself because I realize that the only thing you have to offer to another human being ever is your own state of being. You can cop out only just so long saying, I've got all this fine coat, Joseph's coat of many colors. I know all this, and I can do all this. But everything you do, whether you're cooking food or doing therapy or being a student or being a lover, you are only doing your own being. You're only manifesting how evolved a consciousness you are. That's what you're doing with another human being. That's the only dance there is. When you are protesting against somebody, 
The degree of consciousness with which you're protesting determines how well they can hear what it is you're really saying. And consciousness does not mean attachment to polar polarity at any level. It means freedom from attachment. And once you see that the highest mother is the mother who is the most conscious mother, the highest student, the highest therapist, the highest lover, the highest anything, and you begin to see that the way you serve another human being is freeing them from the particular attachments they're stuck in that are turning them off to life, then you realize the only thing you have to do for other human beings is to keep yourself really straight and then do whatever it is you do. See, it's easy to know this when you're sitting up in a cave. It's quite easy to sit and meditate and realize how all this is. And ha see how you get stuck in roles and get hidden off and how the life process, that spiritual contact, turns off. The minute you think you're somebody doing something. As long as I think I'm speaking to you and I'm doing something to you, forget it. I'm just keeping you out there as them. The question is, are you them or are you us? You them or you are. Well, if I think of you, if any model in my head keeps you being them, I end up turning off myself is what I've done. My consciousness, my concepts of the universe have turned me off. Because I know that the higher consciousness state is the unit of state in which it is all us. Here we are. I've experienced that. I know that. That's valid. It's intuitively valid. So now it's the handwriting on the wall. It's absolutely obvious now that every time I perform an act which increases distance, that kind of subject-object distance, I am taking myself one little jot further away from that unit of state, which I now know is. So only an idiot's going to bring himself down. Like you take truth. In the, in the, I know I'm supposed to answer questions, and I certainly don't mean to be evading questions. <laughs> You're welcome to ask the questions. I, I'm sort of giving you a framework and sharing a lot of stuff I assume everybody wants to know. If somebody's very frustrated because they can't ask a question at this moment, do it. There will be lots. Yeah. What's this, mon this mantra thing you do while you're driving? I don't know what that means. Right. A mantra is a, is a, um, a phrase. Uh, or it could be a word, a sound or a phrase. And it's a phrase that you repeat over and over and over and over again. Take, for example, the phrase, the Tibetan one. You could use English ones, but let's, I'll show you why you use Sanskrit or Tibetan ones. Take the one, Om Mane Padme Hung. Om Mane Padme Hung. This is perhaps one of the most uh, widely used mantras in the world today. In fact, in Nepal, you go out and you'll see rocks 20 feet long, 10 feet high, with Om Mane Padme Hung written in tiny letters over the whole rock, so you can just read it like a letter. Um, and there are prayer wheels at the temples where written in them like 10 million times is Om Mane Padme Hung, and you go and you turn these wheels. 
and you see llamas going around stupas saying om ne padme 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 om now when you first start to say a mantra The first involvement is in hearing it outside through your ears, saying it aloud and hearing it and thinking about its meaning. That's the first game you play with mantra. See, so if I give you that mantra, Om Mani Padme Hung, you think about it and you think, well, what does it mean, you say to me? And I say, well, what it means, there are many meanings, there's a whole book written about its meaning by Govinda. But one of the ways of understanding its meaning is that Om, meaning like Brahma, that which is behind it all, the unmanifest, Mane means jewel or crystal. <coughs> Padme means lotus. And Hung means heart. So one level what it means is the entire universe is just like a pure jewel or crystal right in the heart or center of the lotus flower, which is me. And it is manifest. It comes to forth in light, in manifest light in my own heart. That's one way of interpreting that, right? So you start to say, Om Mane Padme Hung, Om Mane Padme Hung, and you're thinking, see, God in his unmanifest form is like a jewel in the middle of the lotus manifest in my heart. See, and you're going through that and feeling it in your heart. That's one trip, okay? That's the, the first, that's the lowest level operation of mantra. Okay? It's sort of getting, it's putting one set of thoughts into your head in place of another set of thoughts. Instead of thinking like, gee, it's hot out. Should I have a milkshake at the next stop? Gee, the car, the engine sounds a little strange. Yeah. I wonder how, gee, those Chevys, those new Chevys don't look very good at all to me. Yeah. Boy, I've been on this trip, you know, okay? Instead of that, all of that stuff, which is terribly profound and important, but isn't really that relevant, you go into the mantra. Once the mantra has been going on that way for a while, it starts to change in its nature. You stop thinking about what it means. You just get sort of addicted or hooked on the Tibetan sound of it. And then it starts to move into your head and then from your head sort of down into your chest until pretty soon it's going around like a little wheel going around inside your chest. Just right? Now at that point, it has stopped meaning anything to you. Anytime you want to bring it back into consciousness, you can rerun its meaning through, which will do that thing for you again. But you, can, you keep it down in this place where it's just running off. Now it's got another quality to it. That is that when a mantra is done sufficiently, it gets into a certain kind of vibration or harmony with the universe in a certain way, which is its own thing. That is, the conscious beings who evolve certain languages, like specifically Sanskrit, evolve the sounds of these languages to be connected with various states of consciousness, unlike English language. So that a Sanskrit mantra, like um, um, Aditya Hridayam Punyam Savshatru Binashanam, if you do that over and over and over again, it will take you to a certain state of consciousness. Am I uh, spreading this description out too much for you? Or do you, can you? Um, it's very much like um, in Tibet, for example, they use what are called tankas. Uh, if you go to a doctor in Tibet, 
instead of giving you a prescription for pick these herbs by a damp rock or go to your local pharmacy and get whichever level of the game it's being played at, instead of doing that, he often may give you a, a uh, tanka, a mandala, it's called, a mandala, to take home and put up on your wall and meditate upon. Now, this is really far out, you see, because here's your doctor, you go through him because you've got headaches or because you're depressed see, or because you've got fear or because you've got bleeding or something, and he gives you a piece of paper to stick up on your wall and meditate upon. Now, you'd say, well, that's pretty primitive. But wait a moment. <laughs> Just assume, for example, they're not all nuts, see, and they're not all naive. And you go and you sort of sit down in front of this paper and figure out what it's about. And after a while, you learn that the way these are designed is that you put your focal attention on the entire mandala, which is circle within square, and the square has gates, four gates. And then pretty soon, your attention, and just let yourself be with that thing, let all other thoughts go and just stay with it. Pretty soon your attention is drawn in through the gates and in and into the inner circle and inner into the innermost circle. And there is a specific design or being or something in that inner circle. And when you come in and in and in, you then experience the inner circle as like a long tube. It takes on a depth. And as you stay with that inner circle, you get drawn, literally drawn, your awareness gets drawn through that tube and you get drawn from that tube into literally another frequency of vibration. It's like that model in the center of that little circle changes your consciousness because you have brought your consciousness down to just that circle. It's like if you put up music loud enough, if you go into the Fillmore Auditorium, and there are huge rock and roll bands and 25 slide projectors and it's an overloading of the stimulus field and so on, that will take your consciousness into another place. Now, you can struggle against it and say, oh, I'm getting a headache, I've got to get out of here. I mean, they're not feeding me linear information. <laughs> or you can say, well, here it goes, and just sort of surrender into this, and then there is a new level of consciousness where you are experiencing all, all these things as a... Uh, as a um, in a gestalt form rather than in linear separate components. You've given up one type of analytic thought because it's not adaptive at that moment. Well, a mandala, very much like what's called faith healing, is based on the idea that mind manifests in matter and that as you change the nature of the vibrations or the nature of the level of consciousness, there are certain levels of consciousness where certain illnesses don't exist. And what a faith healer does is he uses his own vibrational rate to bring you to another vibrational rate. That's the way that process works. So these tankas work the same way. Well, a mandala works, a mantra works the same way. That is, it'll take you to its place. Now, there are mantras that are very strong power mantras. There are mantras for every particular thing you could want. But the only kinds of mantras that are primarily used in the West and the ones that I work with are all what are called general mantras. Wherever you are, they'll take you further on, right? It's sort of an infinite progression. It's not committed to any level other than the final level, which is no level. Oman ne pedmi hung is one of them. So that after you've been doing it for a while, it starts to affect your consciousness. It's just like when you do pranayama or breath control, 
After you've been doing the basic breathing exercises for just a few months, your breath gets very gentle and even. And instead of this <sighs> type environment most of us live in, if you watch a yogi's breath, it's always just very faint, very delicate breath. And that breath is the environment in which your consciousness is living all the time. It becomes a, it's a very intimate environment that most of us don't notice at all because we're just so used to whatever our breath is. We think that's the way it is. But when we start to create that calm breath, it starts to bring us into another space. So that the mantra brings you into a space. Now, in addition to that, it serves as what would be called a centering device. That is, it's a place to make figure so that everything else becomes ground. See, here is your predicament. You are stuck, most of the time, just as I am, in the illusion. That is, you are attached to something in time and space. Or in, the, in another language, you're identifying with things in time and space. You're identifying with your body, with your feelings, with your, with your mind, with your thoughts, your feelings, you know. And the idea of a mantra is that it just sits there and all that stuff goes by. It's like a bridge on which you stand looking down into the water in which you see your own life going by. It's a training device to break you out of your attachments. Like when I'm driving and doing mantra, the question is, am I, if you said to me, what are you doing? Would I say I'm driving? Would I say I'm doing mantra? Would I say I'm driving and doing mantra? Now, if I've forgotten, I'm driving, and the guy who's driving gets tired, and he goes through the whole trip of driving. He's all attached to his driving. If I say I'm doing mantra, then just driving is just happening. So in other words, the mantra is a technique for bringing me into a place in myself which would be called the eternal present. That is a place where nothing's literally happening at all. Nothing's happening at all. It's a device for calming my mind. That's what it is, a device for calming my mind. And it gets so far out that after I did it for two days and two nights solid in N Nepal once, I stopped to go to sleep, and of course it continued going. But instead of it continuing going just in my voice, it continued going, and now what it sounded like was a cross between the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and the O Heavenly Day Chorus. You know, that it's that huge thing, except it was made up of old, all old voices, and they were stretched back in time and space in infinite dura you know, distance. So all I heard was, and the wind was, and the air conditioner was, the whole thing. I had tuned in on that place where that was all I could hear. But it was no longer my voice. And I went rushing into a yogi, and I said, what's happening? <laughs> I'm going crazy. And he said, you've tuned in on the Omkar. That's the... That's that place. You've tuned in on that place. There it is. That's where they're all hanging out. <laughs> sort of why I have all these pictures of high beings hanging around here. Because I know it's like the difference between reading the words of Buddha and the words of Alan Watts. I mean, Alan Watts is very groovy and he's a very high journalist, but he's not Buddha. See? And when you read Alan Watts, you're reading groovy things and a beautiful explanation for a layman of how it all is, but you're also getting all the reasons why Alan Watts isn't Buddha. See? 
because he can't help but be his being, whatever that being is, and the being is that he's not Buddha. So that's what you get. It's like a typhoid Mary. I mean, you know, it's like... <laughs> see, and it's interesting because my teacher is so far out. He's so delicate. He's a very beautiful Brahmin. He said to me, he said, um, don't eat any food that isn't cooked with love or with mantra. He said, because it will poison you. That because the vibrations of a person cooking food enters into the food when it is cooked over fire. Fire transmutes, it converts, it brings that energy. Well, now, I could, I can go into a restaurant along the road and eat something that is cooked by an angry chef, see, and I won't experience it because I'm so gross yet. My teacher would get violently ill, see, even, and uh, you, you will go through all of your changes about this, but even if the food were brought to him by a loving person and he didn't know anything about who cooked it, he would still get ill because those vibrations are as real as you get nauseous from the color green or blue or purple or whatever or whatever your thing is now at another level he could take that energy and transmute it because that's the whole issue of transmuting energy which I'll only talk about if you ask me <laughs> Okay, that's my introductory remarks. <laughs> they can go on for the next 10 hours, I think you should know. When I first came back from India, I had so much energy. Of course, I'd been sitting silently in a, in a temple for six months, you know, and all that w talk I hadn't used, I'd been using ever since. <laughs> and I went to Wesleyan University to speak, and I started at 7.30 in the morning, and I ended at quarter of four. 7.30 in the evening, and I ended at quarter of four in the morning. And out of 500 people, about 250 were still lying stretched out in the aisles, and we were all in this dark auditorium, and every now and then some more bit of something would come through, and we just got into a space. So. What kind of questions may I... I would like to invite, since there is a most heterogeneous group here, as that whoever we are, that's who we are, and any question you can ask is useful because any answer we give, we all need to hear at some level or other. So we are only asking questions of ourselves, whatever level we're at. So don't feel that any question's too naive or too anything. Just feel free to, too technical, because we'll deal with it however it should be. Yeah. Well, uh, it's interesting that I, I haven't read anything written by you. I only know you as Leary's associate. Uh, then I, when I was meditating, by the way, I should probably give uh, a brief introduction of how I got into it. Uh, I'm a follower of the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and recently we were meditating in a group meditation and somebody had listened to a tape you had made and he made the statement that your guru said that LSD came to, uh, well, God came to the United States in the form of LSD and uh, as far as I know, drugs have very little to do or almost nothing to do with consciousness. Even though, you know, I mean, of course, if you get on the Leary kick, he'll give you the seven levels of consciousness and how on the highest level it's associated <coughs> with Hinduism and Buddhism, which I don't agree with at all. And my own guru, the Maharishi, which I feel... Excuse me one second. Yeah. I think we have to define this evening as an evening of questions and answers. So you, instead of making a long presentation, I think you better limit yourself yeah. to a specific question, you, okay? Uh, I think I'm going to have to do that. Right. What did you imply by that statement? Because I think this was quoted in that uh, interview in Playboy also. 
that God came to the United States in the form of LSD. I didn't imply anything. I reported the information I had picked up in India, which is the information that I have available from people whose consciousnesses I totally trust. Right? And the quote I gave was a quote from my teacher with whom I lived for six months, who was, as far as I could see, one of the purest and highest beings I had met. And when I asked him what LSD was, he went away, and several weeks later he came back and he wrote, uh, and the quote is almost exact, he said, LSD is like a Christ coming to America in the Kali Yuga. Uh, America is a most materialistic country, and they wanted their avatar in the form of a material. The young people wanted their avatar in the form of a material. Um, and so they got LSD. If they have not tasted of, of such things, how will they know? How they will know, was his actual wording, question mark. Now, this plus the fact that my guru took 900 micrograms of LSD and nothing happened to him, and I watched this process happen, uh, were the two bits of new information I had collected about LSD, which I reported back to the intellectual community. I have no, I am not at this moment using LSD, nor am I not using LSD, right? I am doing a type of yoga which is, does not require at this moment the use of LSD. I honor LSD that LSD has, for me anyway, made a major change in my perceptual field. And I feel that under suitable conditions it is a major breakthrough for, of technology allowing man to change his levels of consciousness. I share Tim's vision in almost every way. Uh, I think I'm not as attached to certain kinds of polarities in terms of establishment and good and evil and dropping out and so on as Timothy is, but I think he is a great visionary. And my feelings about LSD are I honor it. I also think that it is very quickly becoming an anachronism. I think it's totally falling out of date because I think that the types of consciousness that it opened, allowed the Maharishi to do the work he did in the United States and allowed the Beatles to do the work they've done and allowed all of that process to happen. I think that only took about five years. And it seems to me that the values in the culture shifted dramatically enough as a result of the psychedelic movement to bring in a, another set of cognitive consciousness possibilities into the zeitgeist enough so that they would become researchable, they would become studyable and explorable, and yoga, which was a dirty word seven years ago, can become now a highly respected and thoughtful science, as it should be, as it is. Um, it is an entirely different matter for people who have known of an experience of another state of consciousness to work on themselves than for people who have not. Um, if I observe the Gurdjieff students, the um, uh, Kirpal Singh students, a lot of the students, those that come in in order to get some kind of group affiliation and are just good pure people can meditate and do the work for long times and very little happens. However, as my teacher has said, how do, if a person knows of, knows of such things then, and that's mainly what all of the Indian literature says, that once you know, once you have tasted of this possibility, then your work becomes tremendously directed towards, towards this, and then your meditations work at a much, much faster rate. So that in terms of the statistics with the Maharishi Mahesh group, of the numbers of dropouts from the program, 
it is clear that the large percentage of people originally were not able to maintain that degree of involvement because they didn't have a frame of reference which made them able to use the mantra in the spirit in which it was invested. And there is no doubt that the Maharishi teaches a classical method that works beautifully. It is just what he says it is. It does just what he says it does. And when, when the investment is made in the spirit and received in the spirit, it, it has done remarkable things to thousands of people. If one comes into it as an experiment to see if it'll work, or comes into it for a lot of other reasons, there is a very, very high probability you drop out. Unless you're really ready. Unless you're ready. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What do you need to get off your chest? We all carry around different stressors, both big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. It's also a great way to learn to resolve conflict, develop positive coping skills, and much more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Ramdas today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Ramdas.